You might think most money that invests in private companies would be from, you know, investment firms. Well, you'd be wrong. Today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 5 of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I am your host. I am Chris Wink, the co-founder and CEO of Technically, the local economy's new site. We'll call it that. Off the Sidelines, it's sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. They want to strengthen the ecosystem for female founders and advance inclusive capital. That includes diversifying the pipeline of investors and supporters. So yeah, they're here. Because today's episode, how to change the way capital flows through institutions. Sexy, I know. To do that, I brought in technically managing editor Julie Zeglin. Hello there, Julius. Hey, Chris. Now, before you say anything else, I just want to be upfront with our listeners that I called you on the day before my first interview for this because I was like, what does this title even mean? Yes. All right. That is true. So, so let's bring the listener along. What did I say? So to understand private market business investing, which we'll just call venture capital for ease, and how to change venture capital, you have to understand the entire system. And that has changed in the last decade or so in particular. So the amount of VC, which was about $130 billion in 2019, has grown a bunch because a lot of new pools of money from institutions and just different kinds of organizations that you wouldn't normally think of as investors have joined in. Pools of money. Sounds interesting. All right. That sounds nerdily like me. Did you did you check this out or did you just take my ranting at face value? I did. So it turns out you weren't lying. This new money is coming from places like university endowments and corporate venture arms and sovereign wealth funds. Right. So 50 years ago, it was still a novelty for university endowments to invest heavily in even the stock market. Fast forward to 2019, a fifth of Yale's $30 billion endowment was in venture capital. Likewise, the number of corporate VC funds, that has more than doubled in the last decade. So that's where, for instance, Vision Fund fits in. Vision Fund, it's on the bingo card, yes. So you also have sovereign wealth funds, and and these have never been more famously displayed or infamously displayed, I don't know, in venture capital than with the $100 billion Vision Fund from Japanese conglomerate SoftBank. They were backed in part by the Saudi sovereign wealth fund. Right. So from Saudi Arabia to Japan to Yale, the point is that if you want to change investing, the journey does not only go through Sand Hill Road. Right. This is not only a Silicon Valley story anymore. Institutional investors, they're still the cultural heart of venture capital. And individual investors, they play a super outsized role at the earliest stages of company creation. But there's a big system to understand. You want to change investing, you got to understand the big picture. So I went out to try. <laughs> I went out to try to understand that system um, after my pep talk from you, Chris, and I enlisted the help of two investors who are trying to change it in very different ways. So first, I spoke to this guy. I like VCs. You know, I went to South by Southwest. We danced. You know, we listened to the greatest uh, hip hop and R and Bs of the '90s, 2000s, and, and today. And uh, they're really good people, and they're actually very smart people. Right. They are just not wielding our money our capital, the capital that is sourced from places like pension, pension funds, university donations from insurance, our money, they are not being good stewards of. That's our first guest, Dell Johnson. He is a scout and fund manager for NDVC. And if you follow VC Twitter, you may know him as the guy who's declared war on the warm intro. 
Warm intro, yes. That's like when investors essentially require an entrepreneur to be introduced to them by someone else from their network. Right. So he has a whole lot of thoughts about how VC has got to change, including the money that goes into funds before that money is deployed. Great Twitter follow, would recommend. So I also needed a different kind of voice, and I spoke to the CEO and founder of VC Include. I worked with founders in the early 2000s and by 2010 started focusing on Africa and really building capacity around social entrepreneurs and founders. Uh, The first kind of wave in Africa moved into an investor role and started to build what I looked at as as ecosystem. And so I took that concept and um, by 2017 or so, after moving back to New York, kind of expanding uh, my interest, not just in African founders, you know, early stage tech founders, but also women and people of color. That's our second guest, Bahia Robinson. As the name suggests, B- VC Include is a consultancy that focuses on building inclusivity for people of all genders, ethnicities, races, sexual orientations within the VC ecosystem. Okay, so these two, Dell and Bahia, they helped you get at how capital could flow differently out of institutions into business investing. So with Bahia, I focus on efforts that individual funds or even individual investors can do to make change. There's a big investment system, especially when you consider emerging markets in Africa and elsewhere, but individuals are a part of the whole. And then with Dell, he being the provocateur that he is, he spoke more to the structure of the VC industry as a whole, including all of these very many kinds of pools of money that actually fuel investing today. All right. Warn us. Julie, are we turning VC upside down in this episode? Well, if Dell has his way, then yes. Here is some tape I have of him talking about how the FOMO chasing culture of VC pumped up with all this new money might just not do what it actually says it does. There's a point in the size of a venture fund relative to the stage in which they invest, where the actual mathematical laws of VC break down. They're no longer venture funds. They're actually private equity funds in disguise, and they're giving private equity type money to startups. And that is probably deleterious to both the startups and to the return potential of the fund. The later you invest, the more certainty there is, the less risk there is, essentially. Mm -hmm. But like all things, there's a balance. And what I'm saying is that the balance has not been struck. And we've gone way too far into building up these kind of large conglomerate funds that have too much money. That's problematic for various reasons. You don't want to overcapitalize a company, like generally. But then also on the other side, then there becomes a group of startups where they are never capitalized because all of the money is hoarded by these folks. So that's one thing. Second thing, maybe even the more important thing, venture fund persistence, investable persistence is not a real thing. Funds do not get better over time. Managers do not get better over time. So the worst thing that you'd want to do is invest in the best investor. This is, this is all really counterintuitive. And so what happens is LPC, a winner, a winning VC, and they put money on that winner and they put more and more and more more money on that winner. But actually, they're putting money on the most declining asset. There is a quibby joke in there of $7 billion being burnt into thin air while truly new market segments are not even being explored. But it seems too easy. I won't do it. 
Exactly. So <laughs> this is where Bahia also sees missed opportunities. This is why she started her company, to build infrastructure that addresses inclusion gaps that she noticed in the VC space. I was seeing a replication of the quote-unquote Silicon Valley uh, model, which was white guys, well-networked, with lots of money, investing in the stuff that they loved, uh, investing in the people that they knew. And that was being replicated. I moved back to New York, which is where I was partly raised. And I saw Bloomberg had created this great, you know, ecosystem of tech, but it looked just like Silicon Valley. So women were not, you know, included in the value chain or in the supply chain of capital. This was around 2015 when, right around the time when the the actual data point of the 2% of women were getting venture hasn't changed much over the last four or five years. When you look at those types of numbers, when you look at the leakage of opportunity as a human systems design person, as a partnerships person, it's like, well, how can we create an enabling environment to actually increase those numbers? And that, that really requires infrastructure. I was seeing also that as the infrastructure was being created for founders, it was missing that asset manager layer. And you know, for those that know that LPs or asset allocators invest in the managers, I realized that that was a real juggernaut that no one was focused on. And so it was really critical to build a infrastructure of a platform um, of emerging managers, best-in-class emerging managers, growing them, supporting them, providing technical assistance and advisory support, and also being able to interface with the asset allocators to kind of disrupt or to evolve um, the understanding of how to invest in those types of managers to then invest in the founders that have been left out of the value chain and supply chain. We're also thinking about... Yes, the LPs, we've talked about that a little bit, but um, you know we've seen more universities and other institutions like endowments, pension funds, et cetera, putting money into early stage investments, primarily through VC funds. If you go and you read some of the mission statements of these universities, you know, I went to Cal and then I went to Columbia for law school. Cal is like Fiat Lux. And, you know, it's all about creating this community within the within the state and the master plan and cart clear and all of that and expanding access to everyone that's what the that's what the uni, that the university of california system is about right funneling people so they always have a shot they have a chance they don't do that with with the money that they invest how can you say you're harvard have this commitment to say diversity and then um, invest all of our money into a homogenous set of fund managers. Oh, only only uh, only white guys who live in the Bay Area and went to elite fancy elite schools. They are the only ones that know how to handle uh, innovation capital to investors from these two schools that you didn't even go to, because we think that they're smarter. We don't even believe in our own people. We're fifty one percent female. We don't believe in women, right? We don't believe in graduates that came from here. We don't believe in the diversity that we say in our mission statement. We're going to funnel all that money to these other fund managers. That's absolutely wrong, absolutely shameful. I'm thinking about the history of protests at universities and um, encouraging divestment from companies that were benefiting from apartheid, for instance. Does this seem like a, like a straight line to you? Is it related to this history of holding universities accountable? So the opacity of VC helps shield them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm very, very upfront and vocal, right? And this is what I think other people don't understand. You're not going to change it from the inside like that. It's not going to happen. You can even see in the case of this year, 2020, what happened 
was, you know, folks who got scared, they thought the stock market was going to fall or not, or they used it as an excuse or some of their companies started doing poorly. And what did they do? They stopped investing in women. They stopped investing in minorities. Literally what I said, you know, I said last year, right, incremental progress is fine and dandy, but you risk backlash. You risk quick backslide, especially when things aren't going perfectly. And that's exactly what we saw starting to happen. So I don't trust these people. I mean, they've already shown themselves to be inferior stewards of our collective capital, our collective imagination and innovation. And then they can't even keep their own promises. VC has always been a sexist, racist, and um, politically and geographically biased industry, right? You want outcomes over optics. Um, And so obviously there is a push, you know, understanding that the racial component is, you know, embedded in the U.S. and, and most of the developing world in terms of Again, kind of leakage of talent, leakage of value, leakage of capital across many asset classes across the board. That's a generational wealth building tool. Uh, but from a talent perspective, I think having a um, a desire to invest in more diverse founders has been an upward trend over the last year or two. Um, that's continuing to increase because of this, you know, COVID pandemic and uh, the civil unrest. I also think that. It's interesting to see when you ask, okay, so who have you invested in, what the answer is. I think that's where the famous test uh, lies. I mean, the general population probably isn't aware that this is how, you know, endowments are bolstering their funding and that this is how investments are are made oftentimes. I guess, are you you seeing that change or or maybe that's what you're pushing for specifically is, is more of an awareness for this in the first place, but also then applying that pressure to encourage universities to change their practices. So the issue with VC is that they have alienated so many segments of society that the power structure that would usually come to save such an entity that wields so much influence is not going to stand up for them. And plus, VC is just such a small segment of people's investments. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of experimental money, like go experiment it with it. So I feel like I'm given a lot of leeway and, you know, these ideas are given a lot of leeway that that wouldn't necessarily be available if we were talking about more substantial industries. There's been some efforts um, by, you know, different pensions, uh, different states, et cetera, kind of driven by policy in most cases to increase diversity um, in asset management. And you you get a mixed bag of of response on how that did or did not work um, in some cases. I think the the pension endowment space is looking at investments differently now with the advent of ESG or environmental social governance and also the kind of tension around impact investing and what that means and unpacking it because most institutional investors don't like the term impact investing, although they're increasingly starting to uh, invest. And again, not because they're losing money, but because that sector is actually um, outperforming and they want to take advantage of those returns. And that impact piece also includes social. The ESG is environmental and social governance. Awesome and interesting. So you mentioned this resistance to the term impact investing, which I think is really interesting. With institutional investors, not with family offices or gotcha. high net worth individuals. Yeah. So when an institution's, many would say their first role is the return, 
many of them would probably say that they don't need to focus on that because they're just trying to get the money for their endowments, their pension funds, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that these institutions must care? Yeah. I mean, again, I think it, it gets, we all have a bias towards investing in any kind of diversity is somehow, you know, and has this built-in negative, you know, and that's where we're really trying to change bias, you know, decrease bias. We all have it. So it's not like you can completely erase it, but but be aware of, you know, our languaging and institutional investor frame of mind is kind of, it's a loss, right? It's a loss to invest in things that have a social impact, but it's not. And diverse managers have women and people of color have outperformed the market. And so it's an opportunity. It's not a concession. It's not a a loss or an assumed loss. I mean, it's not that. It's you're missing opportunities to drive alpha. And that means that you're, you know, not as great of an investor as you could be. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think that speaks to what the stakes of nothing changing about the like the status quo of venture capital is. It's just is missed opportunities, missed, you know, awesome founders who aren't getting discovered because people aren't looking hard enough or like not knowing where to look or knowing who to talk to outside of their own networks are just missing these people with great ideas and these great ideas aren't getting realized. Yeah. And we've also, I mean, on this podcast previously in our first episode, we spoke about um, network effect, which is relevant to both how investors invest and who they invest in, but also in, in bringing on more investors onto the, the VC side. And that's something that your organization is working toward as well, right? Yeah. So that's the infrastructure piece, right? Because it's the, all of these building blocks, it's like if you're building a, a house, right? With multiple rooms, right? To, to live in, to grow, to thrive, you have to build that foundation, that infrastructure to kind of put all these things on top of it. But the house that we're building is, you know, an ability to increase diversity and in asset management, starting with venture and impact funds. And to really make sure that our partners and LPs see this as an opportunity to, you know, increase their market share and also to drive returns in the space. What is a great first step for a VC who is looking to change the way that capital flows through their institution? I mean, the answer might literally be like, you know, hook up with your organization or or look to a specific, I'm not sure, resource. But what, what would be a good first step for if somebody works at, you know... Well, in terms of venture, best-in-class venture and impact emerging managers, we are the, we're the platform. I mean, I created it because it wasn't there. And so partnering with us gives, you know, any financial institution, institutional investor, just a, a leg up. But I'd also say, you know, it's about a holistic strategy that, you know, includes internal uh, representation, that includes the way they, you know, changing the way they think about investment. I mean, there's a lot of again, kind of bias at every level that needs to be looked at. And I think, you know, we're, we're all stuck at home looking at it. So Dell burning it down and Bahia reordering the components. Thread these together for us, Zeglin. So both Dell and Bahia think that VCs are going to have to change some of their practices or risk failing as an asset class. So much new money has come into private market business investing since the Great Recession. You know, there were 20 or so unicorns a decade ago, which are privately owned companies that are valued at at least a billion dollars. Now there are more than 200. So maybe that's a sign of some amazing innovation, or maybe it's just money chasing money. And the argument goes, herein looms a general sorting out of that which is real and that which is decidedly not. Right. 
because real economic gains happen with real productivity gains or real breakthroughs or just entirely new markets. Making the same investments with the same strategy tends to dull returns over time. Perhaps the leading to the complete you know, dissolution of society itself. And that seems like something that's wild to say, but think about it. People usually fight over resources, right? And when you don't have an expanding pie, then the resource set that we have seems more and more important, which means that people will go to right, further and further lengths to secure it for their group. And so you see even further factionalization of society because there's no more frontier, right? So what they've done, what venture capitalists have done is they've cordoned off um, the frontier for a small group of people, usually elites who went to a couple of, just a couple of schools. And then those people can build, those people can innovate, but everyone else is relegated to driving Uber, you know, doing delivery, you know, those jobs are, can be freeing sometimes and give people space to, to operate. But that's not what actually ends up happening because you have to have another job on top of that unless you're in the, the top percentile of, of folks who, who do that. Here's Bahia noting that the various crises of 2020 has just accelerated this. So what does it look like if this continues to happen? It looks like increased leakage of value. Post-COVID, it looks like half the businesses that are actually started by women and people of color in this nation, from a percentage perspective, over 50% of new businesses, I think 63 or so, um, started by uh, new businesses in the last several years, started by women of color. And so what that's going to do is just, it's going to, the, the nation's going to continue to decline from an economic, economic perspective, particularly as it relates to growth, innovation, education, and all the things that America is kind of built on. And so as the population and the demographics change in this country, but as the world continues to get bigger from a population perspective, it's going to continue to increase inequality. It's going to continually value. I mean, it's, it's going to make the world and the nation more unsafe. It's just going to do things that, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for the growth and development of, you know, our, our country and for the world. Um, and so, you know, I think now is a time with the, you know, next generations coming up. We're seeing a lot of that, like, hey, wait a minute. Why aren't we investing in more women? It's half the population. Like, if, if two, you're telling me two percent of women in venture deserve a check. So, in the end, that is how capital flows through institutions. 130 billion dollars or so of venture capital in 2019, a big number that's growing because a lot more has come from big institutions and endowments and corporate venture arms. Right. Changing business investing includes not just the VC firms, but the asset managers from endowments and, and corporate VCs and the rest, too. That's, you know, opportunity or total curse. Yeah. So what do you think? Which is it? Opportunity or curse? Uh, put on the spot. So I, I'm optimistic. I believe collective pressure on the moral imperative of these pools of money to invest differently is powerful. We've seen that before. I think this industry needs people like Dell trying to radically rethink it, and it does need Bahia changing the system as it stands now. It also seems like there's a real reckoning with what is successful financially. VC is no golden goose, but interest rates are low. Maybe publicly traded tech companies are saturated and facing antitrust, maybe, but so truly new market opportunities and innovations and returns are going to have to come from somewhere. So it, it probably needs a real rethink including emerging markets, both internationally and domestically, 
new entrepreneurs with new backgrounds and new products, institutions, the money coming from them, they're going to need to be part of making this change. Indeed. And if I may add a yes and, though we have to know about all of these big pools of money, this podcast is for individual investors. Yes. And of all VC investing, sure. Individual investors were just a quarter billion dollars in 2019, which is not a big sliver, but it's an important part. So I also want to underscore both Dale and Bahia and most of Technically's reporting, which comes back to the belief that individual investors must make their own change too. That's a good note to go out on. It counts as accountability journalism even, Julie. Thank you. You got it, Chris. Okay, that is it. The fifth episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love this, subscribe. I mean, even if you like it, subscribe. Leave a review. Pretty please. It means a lot. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the reporting of Julie Zeglin and the time from Dale Johnson and Bahia Robinson. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails, with post-production by Max Graham. I am technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. Bye.